Greetings programs, it's Hank and Fernell back once again. Good to have you guys tuning in. Thanks for stopping in a Rune Hammer. And we're going to get back into another RPG talk. So let's uh let's hear that intro. Can we get that? Ah yes. Okay. So I just wanted to talk about a few key concepts that have come up recently here in RPG land. Um, and I'm kind of making some strange transitions. So as you guys know, for about a year, I've just been a player rather than a DM. And uh, wow, what an experience. I did a little bit of DMing on Ghost Mountain, but uh, mostly just been playing in various people's games and having a good time with it. And occasionally drinking too much. <laughs> okay, yeah. So anyway, in the contrasting sort of journey of Dungeon mastering and playing and just all these kind of games rising and falling. A few new issues have come up that I think really are going to warrant a nice meaty RPG talk. So we're going to talk about so we're going to talk about the value of a confidant. We're going to talk about implicit worlds and we're going to talk about using intention in your sort of creative method. But first, let's take a look at that old mailbag. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. That time I just sang it. I didn't edit in the official song. You know, it's just how how terrible I am. Okay, so the first one comes from um, someone on Facebook who's asking about making a warlock with a sort of an elder god type theme, but they don't want it to just be like, oh yeah, I have a pact with Cthulhu because it just seems too on the nose. Um, so I don't think there's... A, a ton to do in this area, but it's kind of an interesting area. And the, the more the underlying question here is, you know, I want to get like an elder god thing going in my game, right? But I don't want to just do Cthulhu. That's a very fair point. And so what do you do? Well, there are some other references to look at, like the Ogdru Jihad and Hellboy. Um, there are like sort of forces that I think could be interesting, like the uh, the triangular door in that movie, The Void. Um so you could have this kind of black triangle theme. Um, and then you could take it even as far as something like the monolith from 2001. I would consider that to be very elder gaudy. Now, I know it doesn't have tentacles or anything. There's no weird bat wings on the monolith. But the, the, the absence of answers in the monolith is very uh, Lovecraftian or very, you know, uh, outsider. You know, it's beyond our world and time and sense of scope. And that, to me, is really the essence of the the sort of Cthulhu tone that I think you're going to be looking for. Not necessarily something with tentacles. So I think the question is interesting, which is, you know, I want to do an Elder God thing, but I don't want to just do Cthulhu. Um, another thing you can always do is, is plumb the lesser-known stories by Lovecraft, like Mountains of Madness. And the Mountains of Madness fe feature these, these old beings, you know, they're more like architects. They're like these sort of starfish that kind of waddle along upright. Um, that are actually, I think, even older than like Cthulhu and the other gods. They kind of made parts of the universe and stuff. You, you actually, you never really get any answers, which is all part of the magic. But that would be my advice is pick something that's very answerless. You know, the Black Triangle is a really good example. The fun of the elder gods is not that they have tentacles or that, you know, they're, you know, half bat, half octopus, half insect. Like that, that is just a, a human con construct of a, a true outsider, you know, an outsider being a word for, you know, a being that is truly beyond us. Um, I think the fun in it 
is picking something that isn't like, you know, well, I'm the god of light and I'm the god of feasting and I'm the god of war. Well, this one is the god of nothing. It's it's a dead god. It's an it's it's a not there creature. It's a an emptiness. But also there's something there and and that strangeness is where you can get the sort of the salt and pepper for your RP when you're working on this sort of fringe elder god concept. So that was one little piece of mail I thought was kind of interesting. Let's see what else we got here in the bag. Oh, another one came up which is like what's this deal with int and wiz? Are they really relevantly different? Not really. <laughs> if you wanted to just cut wisdom out of your game entirely, I think that would be totally reasonable. Um, you might get a little bit of flattening of sort of mental characters. So you don't want all mental characters to basically have one build. And, you know, sometimes this this feels this way with, um, like, melee combat characters, is they all just feel like strength build characters, right? And so what you want is that dex melee fighter, which is like a rogue, and it gives you some salt and pepper, some variety inside that type of build. And so I think the main reason wisdom and intelligence have stayed separate so long over the years is to give that texture to you know, cogitating type characters so that, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a sort of a mental nonviolent character, but I'm not like him, right? That wants you to have the wisdom stat. Now is wisdom and intelligence, are they truly, you know, counterpoints to each other? Not really. The original question that came up in mailbag was how come wizards use intelligence when they spend their lives, you know, striving for wisdom? Now in this question, he's kind of mixing game terms with common colloquialisms or common language, and that can be a little confusing. Wisdom in its common usage is absolutely something that all wizards strive for and, you know, all sort of mental people strive for. But in the sense of a game term, wisdom is uh, implicit smarts. It's, impl- it's spirituality. It's, it's built-in knowing. It's inspiration. It's, it's sort of the, the higher side of the mind. Whereas intelligence is just the nuts and bolts side of the brain. I can read things. I remember things. I know things. I understand things. That's all very surface level. Now, you can be super intelligent, but to be super wise is to be more like a monk and so on and so forth. And we we know all these things in our gut. But I think it's an interesting question. If you're designing your own RPG, which all of us kind of are by the fact that we're playing one, wisdom is probably the easiest thing to get rid of. Like, you could easily use intelligence for your perception checks or for your spot or your search or whatever. I think that's very common. I think, though, that there's something very symmetric and something lovely and elegant about six stats. That's why it has endured for 30-some years. And there's something nice there. Um, It feels balanced. It feels intuitive. And five stats feels like maybe you're getting a little too anemic with the statistical build out of your character. So I think that's why Int and Wiz have survived over the years. This isn't like mind-racking RPG talk stuff, but the question came up and I just kind of thought, huh, yeah, that's a thing. I wonder if you could just do a game without wisdom. Why not? So those are just a couple little mailbag ditties that I wanted to throw out there for you guys. Um, I, you know, I come into my, my thing this morning to look up, think about mailbag day. I got 41 notifications. I'm just like, oh boy, here we go. Now, most of the stuff that I get in mailbag is nuts and boltsy stuff about table behavior which I guess is my third item here for Mailbag Day, and we're going to get the hell out of this mailroom because it smells weird down here. But uh, table behavior seems to be the most perplexing portion of our hobby. 
Um, you know, everyone wants to know what kind of foam you should use and, you know, are those normal popsicle sticks and stuff like this? What, which glue gun do you use, right? This is very, very uh, thin type of questioning with easy answers. But the great majority of questions that I receive are, are, aren't even really about the game. They're about social situations between people. You know, how do I deal with this situation? Or I've got a weird little pickle on my hands and I was hoping you could give me some advice, that kind of stuff. And a lot of these situations are answered with the same sort of cheesy kind of Dr. Phil answer, which is like, well, almost all these sort of odd social situations can be solved with a little bit of honesty, a little bit of empathy, and some care and a conversation. And I think expecting them to resolve themselves or thinking that the game is sort of supersedes uh, social, um, you know, oddities is the only pitfall here, which is like, well, you know, I don't really want to you know, kill his character off because I don't want to play with the guy anymore. No, no, you don't. That's creepy. Don't do that. You know, you if you don't want to play with someone anymore and they're in your group and they have been for a long time, you might have to adult it up and sit down and say, hey, man, I think, you know, I'm not going to, not really into this anymore and I'm going to switch it up a little bit. Now, granted, it's easy to give those answers and harder to live those, those words. You know, it's harder to do this stuff sometimes. Uh, there's a lot of emotion built up between people. But I think this is why table behavior questions are so frequent, is that it's the, the part of the, the hobby that's never going to be solved. There is no solution for it because human variety is infinite. So have fun, keep the questions coming, and I'll always do my best to give my most honest answer. But it's just interesting to think about. We do all this other stuff on the side, but the most sort of puzzlement or head scratching is about something that is completely beyond the hobby itself. It's intriguing. Thanks for tuning in to Mailbag Day. I'm going back upstairs with the other normal people. It's creepy down here. Too many spider webs. Hit that music. Let's hear the real music this time. Mailbag Day, Mailbag Day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. Okay, let's get into the meat and potatoes. Let's get into the potatoes. I'm going to boil up some carrots and put them in with my potatoes. Okay, first topic I wanted to talk about today is the confidant, the value of a confidant. So a lot of you guys I know out there are drawn to Runehammer and RPG Talks because you're dungeon masters, right? And so in this never-ending quest to make something a little cooler, to make something more fun, to, you know, get bored with it and then return with a, with a frenzy, you know, to want to change it up, to try something new, to want to tell a different story, to you know, get this sort of itch out that you know you want to do this game that has this thing. This is a sort of a never-ending, you know, challenge and fun of being a dungeon master. So my role is to try to give you tools to do it a little bit more better, right? And to have fun, more fun doing it. And lately, this one has really come up as clutch for me. And I think I forgot how important it can be. Now, as many of you guys know, I have, I do like live by myself now, and that's a big change for me. And I realized only recently, after living by myself here for several months, that there was something missing in my creative process, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And realized, talking to some friends the other night, it's the confidant. Now, now what do I mean by the confidant? Okay, this is someone that you can creatively talk to about your new idea that's not going to be impacted by the idea. So your confidant can't be a player in your group. That, <laughs> that's not going to work. 
Your confidant could be another DM that you know. But I think even better, your confidant is just a friend who's interested in what you have to say. And they'll hear you out. And when you're excited about something, then you can tell them, hey, man, I got this idea for this game. We're going to go in this room. It's got this tilting floor. And like, it's going to be really cool. I was thinking about like putting these guys in power suits and all this stuff. And in the process of confiding, of telling your confidant, this person, this friend, your new idea, it's the best form of dry run that you can do on your new idea. You, have, you guys ever get this thing where you, you prepare an adventure and you prepare about 20 times the amount of stuff that you actually needed or something that you thought was going to take 10 minutes takes three hours or something you thought was going to be super cool just falls flat as can be or something you thought no one would be interested winds up being the whole focus of the thing. You can get an early read on all these components and all these sort of dynamics by telling your confidant about your new idea. And you can see where you wind up dwelling and where you hasten through. You can see their responses, you know, when they smile, when they light up, and when they lose interest a little bit. And you also get the dry run of feeling it come out of your face. You feel the words come out of your mouth. <laughs> and believe me, nothing is better for your, your DMing skill than to have a familiar command of the material that you're, that you're preparing. If you have to look off of your piece of paper to narrate or to make a call onto the table, you're never going to be as fun and dynamic as you have it in your head because you have sort of, quote unquote, practiced it. And I'm starting to think the best way to practice your newest material is in your confidant. This is someone that's not going to play the material, honestly probably doesn't care which way the whole thing goes, but loves hearing you talk. And loves hearing about your latest ideas and latest adventures and latest sort of what's getting you excited, right? They're just interested in you. And so you have this friendly, safe audience to pitch new ideas or even to read blurbs of text to like, hey, check this out, man. This is awesome. It began as so many dungeons do with a door, right? You know, whatever. <laughs> and, and this kind of friend, this confidant is the kind of person that likes to hear you read little blurbs of your writing. They're interested in what you're doing. Now, does everybody have that person around? I don't know. Um, you know, it could be a wife, it could be a friend, it could be another DM, it could be someone online. Uh, it could be absolutely anyone. But you need that feeling of safety so that you can go out and practice your new moves. You can, you can go out in the courtyard of the temple and practice your one-inch punch without feeling like the only time you get to do the one-inch punch is in this first battle, right? <laughs> practice is essential. And the way that you get the practice is through the confidant. So my guess is that a lot of you do have a person like this in your life. It's just what might be illuminating here is to think of them in this way. To think of them as, you know, this is going to be part of my creative process. When I have a new thing, a new adventure, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell them about it. I'm going to, you know, find a way to summarize it and kind of just let them in on, on what's going on. And uh, I think it's also very healthy creatively to do the confidant because it reminds you that you are okay, that you are normal, that you are not weird. <laughs> a lot of times living inside our own heads as creative people, you, you do look around every once in a while and wonder, you know, is anybody else quite like this? Why? I'm kind of odd. <laughs> Why am I thinking about this made up stuff all the time? This is kind of weird. But when you openly discuss this sort of fantasy life that you're living inside your mind, with a good friend that you trust and that you feel safe with, you realize it's 
it's awesome. You realize that feeling that you probably realize with every game session. It's like, yeah, this is such a cool hobby. I love doing this. Because that dynamic between people gives you that, that affirmation that this is a blast. This is cool. I'm not a weirdo. I'm an awesome creative person. Because look at look at how they're lighting up as I tell them about this this troll who has a, a helmet that's made from a beholder. And so he actually has the anti-magic cone. He's got a big eye on his forehead and you can poke him in the eye and so on. Okay, whatever. So I guess the the thesis here on this sort of confidant element of this RPG talk isn't like, you know, you guys, I have this incredible new theory or this new piece of content. I want you to go forth and play it. No, it's more just take a look around in your life and appreciate and utilize this person or persons. And it can enhance not only your creative output, but your feeling about your own creativity. And you can even tell the person, you know, hey, you're going to be my sounding board. Is that cool? I'm going to, you know, like once a week or so, I'm going to hit you with my new stuff and kind of, you know, let's go get some coffee. And I, in my, in my experience, people love it. They, they love this sensation. And it's so much more casual. It's rules-free. It's expectation-free. You're not having a bunch of people at your house sitting around the table waiting for something wonderful to happen. It's all very casual. And it lets you get it out and do a dry run. So give a consideration to the concept of a creative confidant. And, uh, you know, get back to me in the mailbag and let me know if uh, if this is a useful concept at all. But it's been on my mind lately because I think I didn't fully appreciate how much that confidant is part of my creative process. Okay, next we have a little topic that I wanted to call implicit worlds. Whoa, sounds kind of heady. I don't know. Implicit worlds. Now, what is this topic all about? Now, this is a a both an easy one and it can be a bit challenging depending on your sort of creative tone that you like to take. So by implicit world, what I mean to say is there is a tremendous amount of value in utilizing worlds in your games or settings or stories, even monsters and characters that already have implicit flavor. Uh, a bunch of flavorful elements and details that people at the table already know because of, for example, a video game, a movie, an album, um, you know, an art book, uh, another RPG, I don't know. But the most powerful sort of implicit worlds, to me, I think probably live in movies. There's so much nuance and detail that's built in, and especially if everyone at the table knows the movie in question very well, the amount of implicit detail that they come to the table with is very hard to overstate because they already know this world. They know what people talk like in this world. They know what the danger level is. They know what the sort of the lighting is like and the music, and they know these kind of moments that make this world exciting. They know what the bad guys are. They know what the variables are in the big scenes. Now, some of you might say, oh, grown, you know, I don't want my RPG to be a movie world. You know, like I don't want to take, you know, Fraggle Rock and make an RPG out of it. Because, you know, where does that leave the creativity? You know, I, I want to make my own world. Well, that's a little bit my response most of the time until I played in Alex Alvarez's Aliens game. So we're just playing in the Aliens universe. And the universe is so completely built it, it frees you from lots of what you're normally spending brain cycles on, which is visualizing the world, 
visualizing your character, understanding how they're supposed to talk and what their moral stance is and what the variables are here and what the what's dangerous and what isn't and what are the details that aren't listed on the map that I know are there, but what are they, right? In various fantasy worlds, you're not sure which fantasy you're in a lot of times. Like, is this the kind of fantasy where there are chains laying around everywhere or like is everything on fire or is this like fairy dust kind of stuff? Like, do I need a roll to find this out? Like, I need to visualize this scene, right? But in an implicit world, you have it all in your head right away. And I think, yes, this is a bit of a creative shortcut. And yeah, I can't take the sting away with that with any amount of talking. But by saving all those brain cycles that are normally conjuring a world, you move on to the higher level processes of our hobby, which are role playing, which are sort of being yourself. And from the DM's side, you know, making mechanically interesting and varied scenarios and situations and encounters for players to experience. You're not spending your time creating a world. Now, that might sound like, oh, God, that's a knife to the heart, Hankering. What are you talking about? I'm not saying throw away your pencil and paper. But it is something that I definitely underestimated how fun and cool it could be. You know, and I've, I did play in a Tron game last year that kind of had a little bit of this. It had some implicit world to it. Um, but we were playing Fate, and, and I just couldn't quite get myself inside of Fate. Um, but I guess the thrust here of this element of the RPG talk is, hey, consider it. Ask yourself this. If I did a movie game, like maybe a one-shot or something, what would it be? What movie do I and my players know so well that we could just jump in there? You know, would it be a Princess Bride world, like a comedy fantasy world? Would it be Aliens? Would it be, you know, Predator? Would it be Robocop? Would it be Terminator? You know, I, I know that a lot of my movies that I love kind of come from the same vein, but if you get too fringe with the movie selection, you won't get all this implicit detail. Like another one that crossed my mind was like Nausicaa or Warriors of the Wind. I would love to do an RPG in that world, but I don't think a lot of people have a familiar command of the details and subtleties of that world. Whereas something like Star Wars, oh my gosh, the implicit detail in Star Wars is pretty darn good. But I would actually argue Star Wars has become so expansive, it's less clear exactly what makes things Star Wars-y. You know, what about those first three movies is so definitive and that is getting a little bit muddled and, and wider and more expansive in recent times? And that's a, a more difficult question. Whereas something like Aliens, oh man. Everybody knows exactly what to do when you're playing an Aliens game. <laughs> so the, the, the point that I wanted to make is, is consider this. Consider if you can utilize implicit detail in a world that you're creating, a scenario or an encounter, or a piece of gameplay, or, or a little part, or a character creation process, or, or a funnel maybe that, that harkens out to a famous you know, scene in a movie. You know, maybe the, the Hellboy movies would be your setting. If, if your particular group of players are really familiar with all the nuance and detail in that. It's like, oh, well, hell, we're in the BPRD and we're hanging out in the morning and drinking our coffee and wondering what we're going to do today, right? And so you get this instant relationship between characters. You get hierarchy. You get their daily grind. You get their sort of sardonic humor. You get what the monsters are going to be like. You get Rasputin and you get that cool dude with the swords and on and on and on. <laughs> what was that guy's name with the swords, man? That guy was dope. Okay. Anyway, 
that's what I wanted to bring up about implicit worlds is like, you know, let yourself dabble and think about if that could be useful for you. I wanted to talk about the power of intention in your creative method. Wow. Intention. Seriously, dude, are you going to bring this into RPGs? Like this is some psycho babble here. Well, since so much in my life has changed recently, I've been sort of forced to update my cognitive methods to get through each day. You know, I can't have worry and disorientation and, you know, honestly, sort of grief and other elements, anxiety, slowing me down. I can't have it. I I want too much out of life for those things to rule me. And so I've had to learn some new tools to keep my creative brain firing and not let my sort of limbic system just run the show over here. And one of the best tools that I've discovered is this concept of focusing on intention. So what does this mean? I mean, intention could be a pretty big word, right? In the creative sense, it is simply the matter of taking time. And usually, like before bed can be a very good time to do it, um, is to say to yourself, what am I going to do tomorrow as far as, you know, my creativity? I know that I was going to sit down and work on this dungeon tomorrow, right? But instead of setting yourself up for this kind of loosey-goosey notion that you might work on this thing tomorrow... Take the time internally, or even if you need a piece of paper to do it, to say, what, what, what is my intention? What do I really want to do or get tomorrow and only tomorrow? Don't even think beyond one day because this intention for this concept to work, it has to be terribly granular. It has to be one little atom of intention, one thing that not only you can with great detail and specificity tell yourself, I'm going to go do this. Tomorrow, I'm going to do this. Yes, I see it. I'm going to, I can visualize myself doing it. I'm going to do it. It's going to be cool. Not only is it small enough for you to tell yourself that, it's also small enough that you will accomplish it. It's not going to take you weeks. Why is this important? Because you want to get this feedback loop going. You guys have seen my drawing videos, right? And every once in a while, you'll draw something that you like. And you get this little burst of good feeling, right? You get the dopamine hit, right? Like, ooh, I enjoy drawing. And you know what that causes? It causes you to be drawn back. Oh, no pun intended. (laughs) It causes you to come back to draw more because you want that feeling again. And it's the same with intention. If you can accomplish the thing you intend to do, it gives you this really freaking good feeling. It's like, yeah, man. Last night I told myself I was going to do this. I came in here. I sat down. I drew out this dungeon and kind of scribbled out most of the mechanics. And I'm good to go. If I do more stuff today, it's all gravy. If I stop right here... I did what I set out to do. Great. Good stuff. And it it creates this feedback loop. So the next time you tell yourself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to draw that monster so that we have a cool token for the game in Roll20. Okay? Cool. You go in. You get it done. You feel this. Oh, yeah. I did it. I said I was going to do it. I showed up. I did it. Man, that's cool. Okay. Well, it's time for bed again. And What what am I going to do tomorrow? And rather than saying, okay, I'm going to try this intention thing, you find yourself in a habit of asking yourself, What am I going to do tomorrow? What do I want to do tomorrow? And then when it gets bigger, it becomes, what do I want? What am I going after? What what are the big forces in my life, honestly, that I can affect, that I can change for the better? What is it that I'm wanting? And I had a great conversation with a friend last night and was just hounding and hounding, saying, you know, what, what is it you truly want? 
And it's a difficult question to answer. We're so trained to provide all these reasons that we can't just tell you directly, well, what I really want, because no, that's out of reach. I can't really have what I want. I want to be the rock. Okay, let's just say for a moment that what you truly do want is to be the rock. If you really do want that, and you're not working on at least a few things each day to become the rock, so that would be like some training, you need a tan, you're going to need a big tattoo, shaved the head, uh, you're probably going to need to get some acting lessons, um, you want to get into wrestling if you want to do it the same sequence that he did, so on and so forth. If you're not doing any of those things, then either you're tricking yourself that that's what you really want or something worse, which is that you're denying yourself what you really want. You're not going after what you want. And that is the opposite of using the power of intention, is knowing what you want and just not doing anything about it because you think it's impossible or it's too big or it's too far off or you don't have time or you don't have money or you, so on and so forth. Now, granted, there are a million reasons that you can't do the thing you want. <laughs> I understand that. And the number of reasons not to attack a task tend to be infinite. We have so much going on in our lives. But this is why you need this atom-level intention. It's a micro thing. And, you know, it can be small as, I'm going to get coffee in the morning. I know that sounds ridiculous. But if you can tell yourself, I'm going to get up at 7.30 and I'm going to go get some coffee, and then you do it, you have this feeling of, of control and of mental capability. And then it gets more interesting, to me anyways, and for the sake of this talk, when you apply it to creativity. Tomorrow, I'm going to write the opening paragraph of the, of the doodad, right? Of the adventure. But that's kind of it. And I'm just going to try to write that and then I'm going to just let it soak. Rather than waiting for the muse to strike you, which is what a lot of people do as far as their creative method. It's the most common form of creative work is to just, ooh, that would be neat. And then you do a little spurt and then it kind of dwindles off and, and that's it. Now that totally works. You know, it's great. Rock on. But remember, these talks are about upping your game, doing it a little bit more better. So waiting for the muse to strike, sure. It's, it's going to get you a lot. But if you can get command of what you want to do, then show up and do it. You'll find that you are picking bigger and bigger things to tell yourself, I'm going to do it. And pretty soon you'll be telling yourself huge things like, you know, I'm going to get in shape or I'm going to go find myself a soulmate. <laughs> I'm going to buy a Jeep. I'm going to get a new house. I'm going to move to, I'm going to move to Hawaii. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to write a book. Right? I hear so many people that say they want to write a book, and it's really a simple matter of saying, okay, tomorrow I'm going to write this little piece. Not any piece. I'm not. I'm going to work on it in quotes. Tomorrow I'm going to write a little scene of a guy walking down a path and a goblin jumps out. Mm, okay, yeah, I could, I could probably do that in the morning before I go to work. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay, so think about that as you fall asleep, and when you wake up in the morning, you say, hey, you're going to follow through on that thing you said you're going to do? And just as much, it can be dangerous because just as much as it feels good to do what you said you would, it feels a little bit crummy not to. You can feel like a bum. <laughs> so this is sort of the scary part of intention, right? And this is why I think some people avoid it. Because if the moment comes and you're not in the mood or you're tired or you don't have the time or whatever and you poop out on it, well, then you feel like a, you feel dumpy. 
And that gives you the opposite feedback loop, which is like, oh, well, I'm not going to tell myself I'm doing things before bed anymore, right? So there's a danger there. But hey, cool things don't come without a little bit of danger and hard work. So that's really all I wanted to say about intention. It's a bit of a kind of out there, kind of new agey sort of concept, I know. But I think this stuff is important for the creative method. And the creative method to me is at the very root of this hobby that we do. Not just necessarily thinking about games, thinking about mechanics, thinking about dice and players and characters and stories and monsters. No, it's also thinking about us as creative engines. Okay, that's it for for now, guys. That was a quick little half-hour RPG talk. I just wanted to get some stuff off my chest. It's no big deal. Um, Thanks, everyone, by the way, for continuing to be patrons here on Patreon. And remember, RPG Talks only live on Patreon. They're never going to go to YouTube, so they're just for you guys. And um, I appreciate your support beyond the ability of words to capture or express. So thank you so much. You guys are keeping me alive, and it just means the world to me. So I hope uh, there was a couple nuggets of goodness in this yammering morass of silliness, this great saga of shapeless wordcraft that uh, are going to help you with your game or your next session this weekend or whenever you get back to the table. Okay, so this is Hankering Fernale signing off for Runehammer. May your dice roll high, and I'll see you at the table, guys. All right.